and welcome to the Mission Control Podcast with Liana Downey. I'm here today with my special guest, guest Mariah Besharov, who is the Associate Professor of Organisational Behaviour at Cornell University. Welcome, Mariah. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Liana. I'm excited to be here. So, Mariah, it's always interesting to me to hear about people's journeys, and I'd love to hear how you came to be where you are today, focusing on the question of organisational behaviour. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your journey to this point today? Sure. Um, yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, it's funny, I never know where to start these things, but um, given the topic of, of your podcast, I think I'll start way back, which is, I mean, the short version is my parents were hippies um, and in the late 60s, early 70s, and um, they then both transitioned to careers in business. And to me, that's really the roots of how I got to where I am, which is that I'm a, an academic who studies the blurring boundaries between the for-profit and the nonprofit sector. Um, but let me, I'll dive into that a little bit more. Um, you know, I've always been interested in social activism and the nonprofit sector um, and, and socially oriented organizations. Um, I, when I was in business school out at Stanford getting my MBA, I actually was, it was a time when venture philanthropy was a sort of a, a hot buzzword. And I was fascinated watching many leaders from entrepreneurship and venture capital and, you know, the high tech industry looking at what they could do in the nonprofit world and trying to apply their talents and practices and skills. And I watched that both with some excitement, but also with a lot of trepidation and thinking about, well, you know, there's a long history of expertise in the nonprofit sector. And, you know, how is this going to work out? Um, you know, are these two worlds going to meet and blend together? Or is there going to be a lot of friction and tension? And that's kind of a question that's continued to animate me since that time. I ended up after my MBA going to get a PhD, realizing that I was really much more interested in doing research on this issue than being involved on the practitioner side. Um, and most of my research, um, starting in graduate school and continuing through my time at Cornell, has been really focused on how organizations and their leaders manage what often seem to be competing objectives between the social mission, that, which often drives nonprofits or social enterprise or, or public um, agencies, and the need to be financially sustainable, the commercial or the business side of the organization. And, and so that's kind of my, my guiding question. I'd say, you know, there are clearly early influences from my parents and my, my childhood and my upbringing in these sort of two worlds. Um, but certainly my time out um, at Stanford in business school and then subsequent work in graduate school really kind of shaped that trajectory. So give us an example then of, you know, an organization that, would, that you were interested in studying that would really face some of those inherent challenges, just so our, our listeners can get a bit more of a sense for... Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, you see it actually, it's not just in the nonprofit world. So some of my work, my early work was on uh, large um, companies like Starbucks, uh, Ben and Jerry's, Patagonia, Whole Foods Market. We are, yes, they're large companies. So many are publicly traded. They're clearly trying to make a profit to grow, to generate a return to shareholders. But the social mission, I mean, the one that I can speak to in the most depth is Whole Foods Market, where I've, I've done a lot of research. The social mission is equally important to the leadership and, and really the on the ground um, folks in that organization. And so their daily questions that they face, not just at the strategy at the CEO level, but 
on the ground, what should they promote in their stores, right? On the end caps of the aisles at Whole Foods. Do you put the beer, the wine, the cheese, the specialty chocolates, very profitable, sells well, customers like that. Or do you put the basic bulk goods like spelt flour, for example, which is not necessarily high margin, but is maybe more true in the eyes of some of their employees and consumers to the social mission. So there are continual tensions and seeming trade-offs that an organization like that has to face. Um, you know, in the nonprofit world, um, there's a, you know, you could think about this in terms of the continual need to, to be financially sustainable. The nonprofit that I know, know best actually is, is one here in Ithaca, New York, where I um, chair the board. Uh, it's a, essentially a work re-entry organization for low-income women. And as part of our funding stream, we run a secondhand clothing store. And we're, we're challenged there with, well, is this a business? And should we run it like a business? At the same time, the point of the store is to offer training and job experience for our participants. And so we have to continually think about, well, what are we going to hire a manager who knows how to run a clothing store? Are we going to hire a manager who can really train, mentor, and develop people? Or can we find someone who can do both? So there's an example of where it shows up in a small local nonprofit, the Women's Opportunity Center here in Ithaca. And we yeah. see this in other organizations as well. Very interesting, both of those examples. And just again, for the context, I think, you know, most of our listeners would be familiar with Whole Foods, but not everybody would know, do they have, you know, we've got a, this whole kind of B Corp status world. Mm-hmm. What ex- do Whole Foods have B Corp status or they're a business with a social mission? So they don't, they're not a benefit corporation. Um, Patagonia is probably the the, uh, most well-known of the benefit corporations. And I mean, it's an interesting question. In my early on in my research, I used to get a lot of questions when I talk about Whole Foods because people were skeptical. People are still skeptical. Do they really care about their social mission? Isn't it just good PR? You know, it helps them sell their products. If you look, you know, they have chocolate fountains in their stores. Are they really authentically committed to this? And, you know, I, I, I struggle at first with that, but what I've realized over time spending time in these organizations is that what, you know, what really matters is are the people in the organization, at least some of them, deeply committed to the social mission? And if the answer is yes, then it's an organization and a leadership team that's going to have to deal with some of these issues, right? Whether or not the top leadership is doing this for authentic, genuine reasons, um, you know, if, if enough employees care about that kind of commitment and that stuff, dealing with tensions between the social and the business is going to come up and you're going to have to, as a leader, figure out how to navigate that. And are they publicly listed? Uh, yes, they are. Yeah. So, I mean, that's an interesting challenge too, right? I think it's always easier for, because, you know, my understanding, and I suspect you're by far a better person to speak to this point than I am, but the difference between, you know, a benefit corporation and other corporations is that when push comes to shove, you kind of have explicit permission to prioritise a social mission over your um, financial mission. Whereas, you know, if you're a publicly listed company, your primary responsibility is always to your shareholders. And, of course, a lot of businesses I have worked in make the argument internally that, you know, doing good by... For, on social issues is good risk mitigation because it reduces problems further down the track. But, you know, I know it can get a little bit hairy at times when you have a very clear choice about do you do something or not, and you've given some very practical examples about, you know, just within the management of the store. 
So, you know, that's interesting too, because I think it does put them under more pressure in a way that if you're private, you can kind of make those decisions in the way that feels right for you internally, but you don't have that uh, pressure. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And, you know, in a way to do it as a public company and not, and you know, if you're not a, a, a B Corp, it's, it's harder in a way, right? The, the B Corp, and at the time when I started studying Whole Foods, benefit corporations were not what they were today. And, it, you know, it's a really remarkable shift, I think, to see that you now have this legal option, right? Of course, there are, you know, there's the community interest corporation in the UK, there are other equivalents around the world where you can get this kind of legal protection that, you know, and just sort of justification and support for what you're doing that you didn't used to be able to have. I think what's notable, though, is that, it, so in some ways, maybe, you know, it's more challenging for a company like Whole Foods that can't go back to, you know, their incorporation and say, well, you know, this is part of what we're committed to, right? This is part of what you signed up for as an investor. Um, but even for B Corps or pure nonprofits, there are these significant challenges that arise um, and you see that the legal so the legal status alone doesn't solve all the problems yeah that's that's interesting too and I mean I have always thought about corporate social responsibility sort of in three ways and I'd love to hear how you think about it one is you know you've got just some fundamental obligations right you you follow the law you pay your taxes and then you know, it should be that if there are people who are willing to pay for your services, then there should be some basic societal benefit to providing anyone, right? First of all, does that kind of, how do you think about the broader question of social responsibility? And then within that, I'm interested in probing a little bit about the first one and the role of companies and regulation mm -hmm. and kind of what the implications of that are for where we are in the US today because I have some ideas about mm -hmm. the role of regulation and some of the, the, the impact and influence that companies have had and how that's impacted issues around equality in the country but just starting first with that question of um, sustainability how, how do you think about the, the roles and responsibilities of an organization when, when you think about you know, corporate social responsibility? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I have tried really to stay away from sort of what are the, uh, you know, the, the, what's the jargon around it or what does, um, you know, what are, what are companies claiming in their annual reports or whatnot, or they have a CSR office, and really to focus on what are they doing? And so I think, you know, it's tricky, right? Because people use the term CSR and then of course you have this debate, well, isn't it socially responsible to be, you know, a large employer and provide jobs for people, right? And so I think one way that I've started to think about, which is, has nothing to do with the regulatory front, right? And sort of the legal obligations or the, you know, the policy requirements is um, to think about the extent to which an organization's social commitments are central and core to the functioning, the operations of the organizations, as opposed to being more peripheral, like, okay, we have a foundation or we have a CSR office, but it really doesn't interface with our core business. And frankly, what CSR does isn't related to our core business, right? They might run employee volunteering days or provide donations, but they're not doing it in a way that's related to the line of business that we're in, say. And so I, I think making that distinction between core and peripheral 
you know, at some level, that's a choice. That's a strategic choice that an organization can make. Can make. I think if I were to take it from uh, a normative perspective, organizations have an obligation, I would argue, to, to make their social activities central to what they do. Now, there are various ways to do that. But that, you know, that, that I think is a personal view. I think from the perspective of, of leaders and people looking at organizations, you want to understand and think about, well, how central versus peripheral is the social activity, whether it's called CSR or not, to what the organization does. And then the second piece that I think you really want to think about, which is sort of implied in there, is how, um, to what extent does the social activity, the social mission, if, you, if it's going to be CSR, the, the CSR activities of the organization, to what extent does it reinforce the business operation and to what extent does it conflict with that? Right? So example of conflict would be um, Carlsberg, which is a global uh, brewery um, beer company. You know, they have this big initiative around responsible drinking that came out of their CSR office. And, you know, at some level, that's kind of intention with selling more beer, which is the core thing that they're trying to do, right? And so there's a real struggle in that organization between, you know, how do we do this CSR stuff that we think is really important? Yeah, it's related to our business, but in fact, being better at CSR kind of hurts our main line of business. And so there's a, you know, there's a real challenge there, whereas in other organizations, things are more um, compatible, right? Where the, the, the CSR work, so let's say you take in companies that invest in talent development, workforce development in the communities in which they operate or with populations whom they, from whom they eventually want to hire, right? Their Cisco systems does this, for example, other high-tech companies do this. Um, I've seen nonprofit social enterprises do this. Um, and that is quite compatible with the core business, right? You're investing your CSR dollars and focus in a way that is consistent with what you're trying to do from a business perspective. And so, um, you know, I, I look at it not so much from a regulation perspective, but more from a, what's the relationship between the social work and the social um, activities of the organization, whether it's called CSR or not, and the core business operations. Are they both central to the, to the organization or is CSR more peripheral? And then how compatible are they? You know, I know that there are listeners who are going to be very cynical about an organization's ability to do something good for society along the lines that you're articulating, say, with the brewing company where those things are inherently in conflict. Um, now that you are thinking a lot about these models and the kind of intersection between the two and the challenges, what's your perspective on whether you know, this is, these things should just be divvied out separately and we should rely on strong regulation to, to prevent things, um, you know, to, pre to prevent kind of companies overstepping their boundaries? Or is it possible? Do you see examples of really powerful, persuasive impact when there are things that are inherently in conflict, like the, the, the beer example you gave? Yeah, okay. Um, so, so two answers here. So one is there's clearly a role for regulation. I will say, you know, it's a little bit outside of what I feel I can claim expertise in, but absolutely sort of setting clear standards beyond minimum standards, right? But at a minimum, you know, there's got to be some thresholds. Um, but I think that that doesn't mean that we need complete um, separation. And so 
Carlsberg, the, the beer company, you know, is one example. I'm going to give you another one from the nonprofit world that, you know, gives us a different take on this issue, but it's the same kind of thing where there's a clear conflict between the business and the social mission. And what I, what I take from this example is that um, it's, it's actually this kind of creative tension or productive tension that you get from having these two equally central yet conflicting sides, the business and the social mission. I'm thinking here of a social enterprise called Digital Divide Data. They were one of the early, what we now would call an impact outsourcer. They were founded in 2001 by a, um, a former McKinsey consultant, actually, uh, Jeremy Hockenstein. And they are essentially an IT outsourcer, except that the, the tweak is that they operate in um, very impoverished um, parts of the world, hiring um, very impoverished or often physically handicapped individuals who otherwise would have trouble getting a job who typically don't have the extent of formal education that they would need to get a well-paying job. And so the social mission of, of Digital Divide Data comes in who they hire and, and the populations that they target and the training and support that they give them to both get on the job skills and formal education with the goal of eventually graduating them to higher paying jobs outside Digital Divide Data or managerial positions within the organization. And so DDD, um, you know, they're on the one hand, they're a business, right? They do digitization work, they do web tag, and they do all data entry. You know, that's, they're, they're like a commercial business in that respect. On the other hand, they have this equally central to what they do, this social mission around who they hire, their, their, their social mission, so their raison d'etre really is to help break the cycle of poverty by providing employment and training and support for education for these populations. They started in Laos and Cambodia, They've since expanded to Kenya, and they actually now have an operation in the U.S. as well. And they're incorporated as a nonprofit. Um, and so, we, you know, just like in Carlsberg, where, you know, okay, you want to do responsible drinking, people are going to buy less beer, there's a tension. In, in DDD, the tension comes right at really, really around two issues. One is who they hire, right? On the one hand, the social mission is to hire people who don't have the skills and the credentials that they would need to get a well-paying job but often those people don't have the skills to do the work that DDD has committed to its clients, right? And so in the early days, when they opened their office in Vientiane in Laos, um, the, the general manager there went out to try to find people from, from the target populations that they wanted to help. The best she could find were typing A words a minute. And this, the senior leadership team said to her, you know, how can you hire people who type A words a minute? How can we run a business like this? And she said, well, you know, what about the social mission, right? So there's the kind of conflict. And um, it also comes in, in where they locate, right? When they were opening initially in Cambodia, they started in Phnom Penh, the largest city. But they realized that, you know, the people who are in Phnom Penh are not necessarily the most um, needy, right? That they're really they should be out in these rural areas, um, in rural villages. That's where people are really being left behind um, from the global economy. And yet the infrastructure in those villages was very poor and the internet could go down and you might not be able to be back up in operation for a week. And, you know, how could you run a business out, out there, um, which became known internally in DDD as this debate between the thatch tut um, dream of going out to these rural areas and what some later called the thatch tut nightmare. So they faced these tensions around where to locate as well as who to hire. And what's remarkable about DDD and what I think we can learn from this is that um, 
they have used those tensions productively over time. They've been remarkably successful. They were noted by Thomas Friedman in his that uh, 2005 book, The World is Flat. They received large million dollar uh, grants from the Skoll Foundation, from Rockefeller Foundation. Um, they are profitable and they yet they continue to um, graduate and support um, people who otherwise, again, wouldn't have access to these kinds of economic opportunities. And in Cambodia, for example, the people they hire have lifetime earnings on the order of 10 times higher than, than comparable others. And so, um, you know, the, then the real question is, of course, well, how do they do that, right? What are the leadership practices and structures that you need to make that, that tension productive rather than uh, destructive? Yeah, very interesting. I mean, all, all good examples. It's not simple, is it? No, it's not. And I mean, and I should say most of my research is really focused on, well, what can we learn from organizations like DDD? Like, how do they do it? What are the practice, what are the strategies and practices that they employ? Because, and, and there's a, you know, there are decades of studies in there, right? There's a, there's a, it's really hard. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of challenges that have to be unpacked. Um, now, I, I noticed you, maybe deliberately, maybe not, inserted <laughs> a little bit of question that I asked earlier. I think we just might have gotten sidetracked, but I'm very interested in this question, particularly in the current political environment in the US, where, you know, we see a very large disenfranchised population, different ideas about what the solution is. But certainly, you know, if you look at any research, we know that the United States has become a much less equal country and that the mythology of, you know, the land of opportunity does not tie with the reality, you know, that people who are born in poverty in the US are more than likely will die in poverty in the US. And one of the things that has struck me as somebody who has worked in more, you know, multiple government environments around the world is that there really is a fairly disproportionate a degree of power that resides with corporations in the US uh, when it comes to regulatory structure, in part because of the way the campaign financing um, is done here, where, you know, companies and lobbyists can have what in some countries might seem like disproportionate influence in, in uh, lobbying and impacting regulation. But that's my vantage point, and I'd be very interested in hearing what you think about it and whether you think that companies, we're talking about companies who want to do good, but we also know that many companies, and I can speak from my own experience when I was consulting, working with um, companies, and you were there trying to think about, well, how do we make money for a pharmaceutical company when the drug goes generic? You know, that's going to be a real problem. It's going to drop profits. How are we going to think about that? How do we think about creating occasions for people to drink more alcohol if you're working for an alcohol company? I mean, those are the day-to-day -day challenges. And it's very at the heart of what um, people are being you know, told to do and employed to do is to make more money for those companies. So how do you see the, the influence on the other side when, it, it, when the, the pendulum swings back to profitability? How do you see the influence of those companies in terms of shaping the regulatory environment and what's your take on it? Yeah, no, I, we did kind of lose that, that thread. You're right. Um, you know, I think you're right, right? Not all corporations want to do good. Now, why is that and, and how do we deal with it? 
Um, you know, it's, it's a tricky question. I think some of it, I mean, this is kind of a classic uh, argument in organizational, of, among organizational scholars, is that the systems and structures that we've set up inside organizations and in our entire, you know, sort of organizational ecosystem and political system, you know, in this country, allow for that to happen. Right. But of course, it's people who set those structures up. And so I think some of what's going on is that we have a real lack of leadership and of sort of institutional leadership in corporations. And you know, I'm not the only one to be saying this. There, there's so many others in, in my field and beyond. Um, but that we don't have, you know, what, what, what the problem is that we don't have people who have created structures and culture inside corporations that are about real fundamental human values that we can all agree on around, uh, at least I think, I hope, uh, you know, around participation and democratic process, around, um, you know, treating people with respect and dignity, uh, you know, around um, rewarding based on on merit um, through an open and fair system. And so, you know, not necessarily all that controversial, right? Um, but but the problem is that we've created organizations where we lose essentially the means uh, supersede the ends, right? That we've lost sort of like what's the purpose? What's the broader purpose here? And it's not just a bunch of bad individuals that are driving that. I think it's also that um, you know we have a system that rewards that, that rewards efficiency, that rewards short-term profits that, and then you can see how these kinds of behaviors are generated, right? And so I, you know, my view is that a lot of what we need in the corporate sector and frankly in, in government and nonprofit too is, you know, real um, leadership that takes a stand on important values and that doesn't just talk about those, but puts those into practice through policies in the organization through, um, you know, how we evaluate people, who we hire, how we make sure that we protect those things rather than get caught up in sort of the technical, the efficiency, the meet the numbers focus that's so prevalent right now. Uh, that's very interesting because you're talking about leadership at two different levels, if I understand you correctly. One is to say the system is what it is. And so if you're a CEO who's operating in that system and you've got the kind of shareholder pressure that many CEOs face, can you still work within that system to lead through values? But then I also hear the kind of the macro question, which is that the, the system in which we're operating, the policies that we have are a function of people and leaders who've made those decisions at different times and that there's, you know, leadership at that point could also influence the broader system. Have I understood that correctly? Yes, I think that's right. And I think the first step, well, a step, not the only, toward influencing the broader system is leader, you know, being a values-based leader within the current system, right? Not allowing the system to run, to dictate the way you run your company, right? Sort of standing up to it within the system, right? And, and we need more examples of that. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I think I... I'm a believer in my observation at the practical level around organizations and, you know, doing organizational design work kind of with different clients is that the structure really drives the behavior that, that good people behave badly in a, in a badly designed system. And that can be as micro as, you know, inadequate collaboration 
or, you know, not, and as part of that, not sharing information or competing when people should be collaborating. But it can also go up to the levels where I was describing where kind of good people, um, if the problem that it, they're, they're trying to solve is how to make more money, it inherently leads you in some cases to behaviour that would feel questionable. And if there isn't a regulatory framework around it, then, you know, it's the reason we have pollution. It's the reason we have, um, you know, expensive drugs, all of those things, right? They are a function of good, I think, in many cases, good people making functions with some of those, con making decisions with some of those constraints being too loose. And that a very, you know, good capitalist, a highly functioning capitalist system is actually dependent on a strong regulatory environment that protects consumers and that we sort of in the US are not we're not quite there <laughs> we're, mm -hmm. we're a little bit more to the spectrum of protecting companies than consumers so that's that's a trend it seems to me at least to have, have been evolving over the last couple of decades I think that's right I think the tricky part is that if the you know, you need some, like the system alone, yes, the structure and the system shapes behavior en enormously. Um, but the system alone, right, you can't compel goodness through regulation alone. I think that's the challenge, right? And so what we, you know, that has to be coupled with people really internalizing and understanding why we have those regulations, right? And what's the broader purpose? And that the pur purpose of corporations is never just to make money. And that even to, and to make the most money, that's a very short-sighted way to see it. In other words, leaders, I think, are much more effective in generating profits if they get employees uh, to believe in a higher purpose that they're serving while generating profits along the way, right? And this yeah. is, you know, many people talk about, Bill George has, a, you know, great work on this with respect to traditional businesses. Um, you know, it applies, of course, in nonprofit and, and government as well, but that, it, you know, we need to think about a higher purpose and just um, financial success. And we can't get that, you know, we need that to be internalized and therefore it can't only be from regulation. There's some responsibility of leaders to connect the work that people and organizations are doing so that they see why they're doing it, not just doing it to make money. Yeah, I think it's a great point. Now, just shifting gears a little bit, one of the things that I'm a big advocate for with nonprofit organizations is that they focus their efforts and energy. It's what mission control really is all about, about taking control of your mission and setting a clear goal. And then making sure that your work is supported by evidence-based approaches. And one of the things that I really encourage people to do is to avail themselves of the work of people like you who spend their lives researching, um, you know, what, what works and what doesn't. And one of the things that often comes up in my conversations where I'm encouraging people to get across the research is either um, I don't know how to get started or, you know, I, a sort of a sense of, um, I guess, intimidation about the world of academia. And my direct experience has been that you can Google research and the topic in which you're working and you can find 
meta-analyses that help you pretty quickly get across kind of the key insights, at least in the broadest terms of the area in which you're working. But then that the most powerful thing to do is to pick up the phone and to call some of the authors of those papers and just talk to them about what you're doing. Now, I know that some people listening might think, oh my gosh, you know, who is going to do that and won't the, won't the academic be busy and not want to pick up the phone? So I'd love to hear from your vantage point as an academic, what, what does it feel like for you if and when people reach out to talk about your work and its applicability in the nonprofit or the government sector? Um, yeah, you know, I love it. I mean, I, you know, I think there are two things going on. One, you know, a part of, you know, I want to do academic research. I want it to be rigorous and have the, you know, the highest standards in terms of um, how I collect the data and analyze the data and write it up and, you know, the peer review process. Absolutely. At the same time, part of why I do this is to have an impact, not just through my academic publications, also through my teaching, of course, but but through contact with leaders and organizations. And so I'm happy, I, you know, I enjoy that part of what I do. Of course, you know, we're all busy and whatnot, but, but I, you know, I, w- I, I really value that. I think, um, personally, I, I do. I think the other piece is that um, there are different types of research. And the type of research that I do is what we in the academic world will call qualitative inductive research. So what does that mean? I don't analyze large data sets with a bunch of numbers. I don't go out and purchase data sets. I go into the field, do interviews, observations, sometimes survey. I gather archival documents, meaning, you know, the internal materials, uh, um, meeting notes, board agendas, whatever it may be. Maybe it's published materials on organizations. And then I analyze that looking for themes in the data. And so I'm constantly in communication with, you know, individual organizations or sets of organizations as I do my research. And, you know, part of, part of, part of that is sort of in return then wanting to, and feeling an obligation to share the, the results and the findings and the insights from the research, not just with the individual organizations that participate in the study, but with a broader set of organizations so that they can learn from and benefit from the work. Because my work is really enabled by the participation of nonprofits um, or, or, or firms. And, you know, I view it as equally important to, to give back. And, you know, at the same time, I learn a ton from those interactions. So um, it's, it's, I think, very, um, can be very mutually beneficial. Well, I think that's very encouraging. And I certainly have found that that's been my experience, that people in your shoes are welcoming. Um, Obviously, as you said, you need to be respectful of people's time and pose your questions thoughtfully. But that, you know, and I find 10 minutes with an expert academic who knows what they're talking about can save months and months of work by getting some clear guidance on what is effective and what isn't in a particular area. So thank you for, I guess, backing up the idea that people you know, should feel open to the idea of reaching out to somebody in your shoes. So, Mariah, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. How can people learn more about your work? Uh, Yes, so you can find me uh, via the the Cornell website if you just search Mariah Besharov. Um, That's the best way to find, you know, what I'm working on today and uh, my papers, uh, many of which are accessible via the uh, digital comments site that we maintain at Cornell. Um, so you can also download those. Um, 
Uh, I'm actually not a very active Twitter user. Normally, I would say, well, you could find that, but I, I haven't fully made that transition yet. So, that, so the best thing to do is to reach out. Email is mlb363 at cornell.edu. Fantastic. And we will put that in the, um, the accompanying notes, if you'd like, as well, so people can find you there. Sure. You've been listening to the Mission Control podcast with Liana Downey. We've been here today talking to Mariah Besharov about organizational behavior and the intersection between the nonprofit and the for-profit world. For those listeners who are working in the nonprofit field, thank you as always for all your hard work. Feel free to join the Mission Control community at www.missioncontrolbook.com. Thank you for listening and we look forward to speaking with you soon.